Hey everyone, today's episode is from our 2022 members only season of programs. If you're a member or become a member, you'll have access to the video version, which includes some great images that are discussed. Details on how to become a member are in the show description. Here's Glenn's interview with Dr. Jamie Kreiner about her book, Legions of Pigs in the Early Medieval West. Hello, everyone, and welcome to what I personally think is a fascinating topic for our members-only live stream. We are glad to have you with us today. We love our members, and we like bringing you things that sometimes are related directly to the mission of the Northeast Georgia History Center, and sometimes we just find things that are remarkably interesting. If you've been following us for any length of time, you know that I am a big medieval history buff. I, I find this stuff fascinating, and we have found one of the most unique topics that I have ever run across. And this is a great example of how, you know, when someone really loves history and when they study history, they always get into it looking at their niche favorite thing, whether that's military history or fashion or, you know, the history of trains or things like that. But as you continue to look at it, I hope your horizons start to expand to a lot of different things. And so, of course, I started out loving knights on horseback and armor and battles, and then I got into the broader medieval subject uh, period of history, and now today we have uh, Dr. Jamie Kreiner who's going to be telling us about a remarkably esoteric and specific topic that nevertheless translates a really neat and important part of medieval history. The title of her book is called Legions of Pigs in Early Medieval Europe, and Gosh, can you think of a more niche topic? And yet, when you start looking at the sources and you start thinking about it, pigs, not only in medieval Europe, but for a lot of world history, have played very important roles in our agriculture, in our foodways, and things like that. When you go and begin searching, you know, pictures of pigs through history with farmers, you get a surprising number. A lot of medieval uh, manuscript illustrations and illuminations show pigs. They are a central part of everyone's life. Why? Well, because they provide a relatively cheap and easy source of meat, a source of protein for these not always very rich, sometimes somewhat poor farmers who may have not the most secure line to their food. And so pigs from history have always been one of those things. When you when you slaughter the pig, you it usually sometimes you'll let pigs out and they'll just go wander. They can kind of take care of themselves. And when it's time to get the meat, slaughter the pig. You take the pig, you slaughter it, you use everything from it, the skin, the meat, the bones, and it's easy to preserve. And pork has a flavor. Of course, it's one of those interesting things that when uh, you begin to look at these, as I said, these medieval manuscripts and photo and pictures, they're everywhere, including the Bayou Tapestry, right? There's a scene in the Bayou Tapestry where the Normans have landed, they're ransacking the Anglo-Saxon villages, and they're getting supplies that they need. And one of them, as you can see here, is a fellow carrying a pig. Yes, I was able to work the Bayou Tapestry into something. I haven't been able to do that in quite some time. But there's lots of references to pigs. And just from a language perspective, it's very interesting how it has come to be in English, right? Pig is an old Germanic and Anglo-Saxon word. It comes from the root pig. It means, of course, a pig. But the Latin for it was porcus, P-O-R-C-U-S. And when the Normans came, they brought a lot of their language that related directly to food, right? This is why when we sit down to eat, we don't eat a plate of pig. We eat a plate of pork. 
because that upper class that spoke French referred to it because they're the ones who are going to be getting the meat most of the time. And the Anglo-Saxons called it pig. In the field, it's a pig, right? On your plate, it's pork. Same thing with, with cows. You don't have a plate of cow, you have a plate of beef because that French word for cow is buff. And the Anglo-Saxon word for cow is, is cow. But I'm getting away from the livestock of the day. We are now going to go to Dr. Kreiner and hear what she has to say about this fascinating look at a little discussed and little known part of early medieval history. Well, thanks for having me on the show. I am a professor of history at the University of Georgia. Uh, I specialize in the history of the early Middle Ages, so roughly 500 to 1000 CE. But I also teach the entire medieval millennium for students. I am from Denver originally, went to grad school in New Jersey, lived in California a bit, but have been in Georgia for about a decade. My work is mostly on early medieval culture, but as with the pig book we're going to talk about, it kind of ranges through um, a lot of different other fields too, but primarily I'm a historian of culture. Yeah, the pig book, you said, that's that's certainly ca caught our eye, and that's probably how you have to refer to it everywhere you go. <laughs> um, yeah. So before we get into that, though, I would love to find out, so someone who has dedicated their, their professional career and much of their life to the medieval period, uh, you obviously must have some fondness for it. So what got you interested in the medieval period initially, and what sort of drove you to, to make that um, what you do? It was kind of an accident, actually. Maybe a lot of historians would tell you the same thing. Um, I was a music major in college and um, needed a history course. Um, and the one I wanted to sign up for on Nazi Germany was full. So I took the one that was not full, which was on the early Middle Ages. Um, but I stayed and got really into it because I didn't realize how I'd had this sort of blank spot in my mind of those centuries. Like I just I knew nothing about them. There was just sort of like, you know, not pictured in my head between the Roman Empire and the high Middle Ages. So I, you know, it was sort of just basic questions, like connecting those dots. Like, how do you get from the Roman Empire to the high Middle Ages? What happens in these, in these centuries? Um, and yeah, I've sort of been stuck there ever since. <laughs> Wonderful. Um, so let's, let's start talking about uh, the pig book. And, and for our, our viewers, I have to say, you know, we, we are always looking for interesting topics. Uh, we are the Northeast Georgia History Center, and we tend to focus on regional history and, and subjects and things like that. But every once in a while, we like to go outside of our comfort zone, and a lot of us here have different little niches that we love to talk about and, and we find interesting. And, and one of mine is medieval history. You know, I've done some real academic work in the medieval period, but I've also jousted at Renaissance festivals, so it's I've run the gamut. But we start looking at things, and man, we come across this fantastic, amazingly, interestingly, interestingly put together work, the pig book. So tell us a little bit about um, your research that led to that, and the role of um, of pigs and, and pork in uh, early medieval culture. So the pig book is uh, my book, Legions of Pigs in the Early Medieval West, which came out in 2020 with Yale UP. Um, I got into the subject of pigs while I was researching my first book, which was on something totally different. It was on political culture in 
Gaul in the seventh century, what's now basically France, but pigs would crop up in the sources for that project. And it was sort of a surprise. Um, and I started paying more attention to them after taking a class in grad school on rural history in the medieval period, which was my favorite class by far. It was so fascinating. I had no idea the kinds of things it was possible to know about agrarian life, which was how most people lived in the Middle Ages. So I kind of shelled all those pig references. And then when the first book was done, I finally turned to this in earnest because it turns out that pigs in the early Middle Ages were ubiquitous um, and people developed working relationships with them in a way that is totally unfamiliar to us now because most of our meat comes from concentrated animal feeding operations and we don't our daily lives for most of us don't revolve around our animals anymore. Right. So, um, yeah, it, I started asking, well, what did it, what did it mean for people to, what did they learn from working with their pigs? How are they affected by them? It turns out pigs are so smart and so, um, adventurous and social and curious that they can be an asset in many ways to farmers, but they can also cause a lot of trouble. So it was, it's also a book about why humans were willing to make that trade-off because pigs came with costs and damages and risks and yet farmers still worked with them and learned from them. What were some of those, I mean, we know what some of the advantages are, right? Delicious, tasty pork products. Uh, but what are some of the, the concerns, the, the, the risk that go along with, with pig farming? Well, pigs are good escape artists. So they can, even if you have like a pretty good pen situation, they can find ways to get out of it because they're social animals that teach each other. They um, can learn from each other how to escape. So it's not just one loose animal often, it's the whole herd. Um, and once they escape, they can do a lot of damage because they're rooting, which makes them really useful animals. They're willing to eat all this all these grubs and other subterranean stuff that humans wouldn't otherwise eat and convert it into pork. But um, if they're rooting around in spaces that are cultivated for other reasons, um, whether it's just a field of grain or, you know, even more seriously, like a vineyard where the rootstock is really crucial to, to the crop, you know, they can ruin something that you've spent years working on um, in an afternoon. And they also are, they can be violent. So they would bite people and were even capable of killing people sometimes. So yeah, there was a, a lot of labor and time required to care for them properly. So I have to guess then that a lot of your sources for this came from some of those lower court records of people deciding whose pig had done what and, and how to recompense the aggrieved? <laughs> I wish I had those records. They appear in the high middle ages, particularly in the English, English manor courts. Um, but in the early middle ages, we don't have court records, but we do have legal codes and the codes lay out in a lot of detail, all of the ways that animals can do damage and all of the ways that people had to sort of scramble to find a satisfying solution to um, dealing with those with those torts basically. So, and then, you know, we do, there are like a few little uh, charters that give us a hint that pigs were involved in legal conflicts, but we're never told exactly what they are. We can only guess. So it is, it is cool once you see this sort of evolve over the centuries and in the high middle ages that um, this is still happening. It's just better documented. <laughs> right, right. Well, the later middle ages even have a couple of uh, pigs being put on trial, don't they? 
Yeah. I mean, once you get into the 13th, 14th century, the sort of scholastic theories of animal responsibility and agency, which is like, you can't hold an animal to account in the same way you can a person uh, is countered with other, other points of view that say, no, we can, we can hold animals accountable where, you know, we work with them closely. Um, we have sort of complex systems of responsibility. So every once in a while you do see a uh, an animal, especially pigs, get put on trial um, in the late Middle Ages. <laughs> yeah, that's there's a what was there's a movie with uh, what's his name? What is the name of that movie? Um, Are you talking about the new movie with Nicholas Cage? Newish movie with Nicholas? No, Cage, there was one uh, with uh, oh the the British heartthrob who played the lawyer traveling around. He's basically a circuit lawyer in the high Middle Ages, and he's having to. Uh, prosecute a pig for uh, being possessed by a demon or something like that. It's I not, have not heard of this. It's not, a, it. it's not a very well-known movie, obviously. Um, <laughs> but it's got a couple of big-name actors in it. And it's just, you know, it's basically takes a, an actual court record and kind of makes fun of the fact that this pig is being put on trial for witchcraft, basically. And the, and, But any, anyway, you'll just have to check that one out. Yeah, I do. <laughs> um, so... For the, I know this may be an inappropriate parallel, but I'm going to make it anyway to see if there's any connection. So, you know, here in Northeast Georgia and in, in Appalachia, uh, especially in the early days, poor people did not necessarily have a lot of livestock. They were scraping out a, a living as they could in the land that they had. Uh, but it seems even if they didn't have, you know, cows or horses or oxen, no matter how poor a family was, uh, living off the land, they did have at least one pig, or or, or or at least access to several pigs. Is that sort of a a parallel for those early Middle Ages that you've that you've studied? Yeah, I mean, um, in areas where people didn't eat a lot of pork, like for example Spain, um, you do see that even the proportion of you know pigs to household is probably about one animal per household per year, even when it's not the main part of their meat diet. Mm-hmm. Um, that's partly because other animals do other stuff. Pigs are just raised for their meat, but if you keep other livestock around, you know, they're good for, um, draft labor, they're good for milk, eggs, whatever, but, you know, and because pigs take kind of a lot of effort to watch in this period, you, you know, they're not always the most common animal on a farm, but it is true that almost everyone had one or ate a little bit of pork every year. And, you know, another thing that's kind of, I think, telling about pigs representation is that, you know, they, their meat was seen as the sort of best to cure over time. Mm-hmm. Barbecue, which we think of now as kind of like a, you know, everybody eats barbecue uh, back then was a, a luxe meal because you don't have refrigeration. So if you're going to cook the whole animal on the spot, you better eat it all on the spot. And that's, you know, that's a ton of meat output for a single a single feast. So right. <laughs> um, pig pork though is seen as sort of the best meat to salt and smoke and cure and like pickling. So, you know, the pork you ate over the course of the year might not be very much. It might be just, you know, sort of a little seasoned chunk that you have in that's, you know, seasoning a much larger meal that's largely vegetarian. Right, right. Um so when you're if you're looking at these sort of things, with you know, you've talked about that there are livestock and specifically pig uh, legal codes, which tell us that it was a big deal. Uh, did you find any other 
besides uh, legal records, good resources to kind of give you an idea of the role of of pigs in the culture? Were there were there weird recipes or uh, or anything like that that you came across? Um, yeah, there there's definitely recipes. Cookbooks weren't a big thing, but we do have a couple of ways you a couple of sources that talk about ways of preparing food. Um, there's also hagiography, so stories about you know ethical people who should you know the hagiographers hey, arguing you should see them as saintly. There's miracle stories involving pigs. There's a lot of biblical commentaries or exegetical material that talks about, it advocates certain ways of seeing the created world and seeing all of the, you know, different moving pieces in that vast ecology. And so that gives a good angle on ways where people were thinking about animals and their lived environments more generally. But I would say the best source overall is actually not textual at all, but material evidence. So mm. bioarchaeology got really great in the past couple of decades. So archaeologists are using evidence that, yeah, we just didn't have that access to prior. So, you know, seeds, charcoal, pollen, and for the case of pigs, animal bones, that were deposited on sites that have no documentation, but have a lot of this material evidence can give you a good sense of, you know, how important pigs were relative to other animals on the farm, how they intersected with other forms of farming and exploitation. And so it's like, you get these little snapshots of microecologies from 1500 years ago. And it's just, it's just incredible. It's a really valuable form of evidence. Right. That's interesting because hey, that way you're able to find where they were and how they were used, how they were chopped up even and things like that. Oh yeah. Butchery patterns can tell you if people were doing different cuts of meat over the centuries, which can be at times a good indication of changing cultural practices. Um, the, the sort of bottom of dishware or cookware can tell you how sometimes the food was prepared. Wow. Um, yeah. If bones have scorch marks, they can tell you that too. Um, leftover teeth from pigs can tell you how well nourished they were. Um, we can do stable isotope analysis to determine what the pig's diet looks like, which is really cool. <laughs> oh, science. So <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that is fascinating. So the, um, with the legions of pigs, uh, book where you, I guess you were primarily focusing on where, I mean, well, I'm, I'm making an assumption. Let me ask the question. Were you focusing primarily on domestic pigs or were you also looking at pigs and, and wild boars and things like that as representatives of of culture as well? I looked at wild pigs some. Um, it's harder to find material evidence of them because, you know, a, a wild pig dies in the woods. No one's really going to find their bones. It's easier to find collections on a farming settlement. But um, there is evidence from... Um, the relative size of pig bones and what teeth they deposited that there was some interbreeding between domesticated pigs and wild pigs in these centuries because um, they were mostly free range animals. And so when they went into the woods, um, they often, you know, had the opportunity to mate with non-domesticated counterparts. And so then their offspring would be hybrid animals. Um, you also see in the early middle ages that people are really treating wild pigs and domesticated pigs as essentially two separate species, even though they knew they could interbreed because wild pigs had this kind of outsized presence in the imagination of mm -hmm. masculine culture, especially 
um, because hunting, which was sort of this like form of military training, but also just like a big elite sport, um, the boar was seen as kind of the consummate game. So if you, you know, had bested this very fierce animal, it then demonstrated how, um, how manly you were. And so it wasn't a good idea to kind of blend that image of the pig with the domesticated <laughs> image of the pig, which is much less impressive. Right. Um, I mean, they definitely did have different behaviors and different physiognomies, but, uh, you know, uh, categorically speaking, they were seen as basically two separate animals. Yeah, that's why I know the, uh, some of the early, um, armor finds, you know, a couple of the early helmets have a figure of a wild boar as a crest on top of the helmet. And it's very distinctly a boar, not a, a big fat pig ready for the slaughter. That, that, that doesn't make a very imposing crest for a battle helm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and yeah, you see that in Roman military culture too, in addition to Northern European, I mean, it's kind of, um, like the pig, it's kind of ubiquitous, this association of wild pigs with military prowess. Right. Right. Did, um, was there any, uh, as far as, you know, the, and this may be getting into some of those details we don't have. What, was there any kind of division of labor within the, in the domestic household that dealt with how the pigs were cared for, how they were prepared? And did that reflect any larger, um, I guess, identities in terms of how the family and the, and the domestic life worked even going forward with other animals? Did, did pigs provide any other clues as to how domestic life would be developing over the, t- over the time period that you've studied? Yeah, I mean, the evidence here is real patchy. Um, we definitely can tell from later periods um, and in many sort of comparative ethnographies around the world that in the modern and early modern period, pig rearing was often a part of women's work in part because they only were caring for a couple of house pigs rather than a whole herd that would be guided around more in a more free range uh, regime. But in the early period, it does seem like the work, if it was gendered at all, it probably skewed male, at least if you were in charge of the larger herds, because most of the records we have for swine herds in the early middle ages, they're men. Some of them are a husband and wife pair. More, a more consistent trend you see is that they tend to be enslaved persons or um, a kind of dependent so that they owed labor of some sort to a monastery or other landlord. Right. But, uh, there were probably a ton of other, those get documented because those are the forms that, you know, the massive landholders used to handle their pigs. But villages probably also pooled their pigs and had like a designated person in the village to serve as the swine herd. It may be that, you know, there were some households that just kept a pig around and then, you know, someone was supposed to keep an eye on it, but maybe could do a good job or did a bad job. I, we definitely, there's so much more that there, that I would love to know about swine herding in this period in part, because what you learn from, um, you know, people now who work, who dedicate their lives to working with animals is how well they come to know and read their livestock and also, you know, how much their livestock also develop a kind of relationship with their herd, you know, also learning to read their herders behavior and cues. And that kind of, that kind of knowledge, we just don't know what early medieval swine herds had. 
Well, and you know, too, I know we move into to later literature and things. Swine herd's not just a profession, it's sort of a pejorative. Uh, did you get the sense that in the earlier periods that was the case? It's kind of a double-edged uh, representation, I guess, which is also, I mean, that's how pig, pigs were both good and bad in um, medieval culture and the swine herds were too. It could be pejorative. It was enslaved labor. It was difficult and dirty labor, but also on the flip side, swine herds were more highly valued than most other farm workers, in part because pigs were such difficult animals to care for. It required a lot of expertise. So it was one of those situations where, you know, people were both condescending and admiring of this exact same person. Right. <laughs> oh, <laughs> oh, fickle human uh, perceptions. The, um, the Were you able to figure out if there were, I mean, Again, I'm asking weird questions. Uh, are there major geographic differences moving across Europe between how pigs were, were used in, the, in domestic periods, the size of the herds, how they affected the cultures? It's tough to get a sense of breed difference in part because often the only pieces of pigs that survive are pieces of their, their toes or their teeth. And so archaeologists have to extrapolate on the basis of that, you know, like what roughly would the withers height be if the toe was X, you know, millimeters long and other sort of breed identifiers, you know, like girth or coat color or behavior, like none of that we can glean from the bone. So right. it's really hard to tell. I mean, we can roughly say that, you know, the pigs in this place were real big, like they were <laughs> in, in Poland, you know, where they were definitely interbreeding with wild animals, but that's just something we don't know yet. Maybe right. maybe eventually we'll figure out a way. But you do see totally different ways of raising pigs depending on where people were. I mean, you know, you see up in Iceland that they're being fed fish guts and bones. And, you know, um, in other spots, you see that they're being fed household slops of other kinds. And a lot of places they're free ranging in the woods. In some places they're, you know, being given grain castoffs. That's that's again something we can find out from both texture records, but also stable isotope analysis. So one of the things that's really cool about pigs in the early Middle Ages is they really showcase how locally adaptive farming communities were. Pigs, because they eat almost everything, um, can really help people adjust to you know their unique hyperlocal circumstances. Right. Well, I'm I'm glad you brought that last point up. Uh, I know we're we're going to have to close here in just a moment, but I wanted to to ask you. You know, for some people, they're probably thinking, "Well, this is so specific. This is such a specific topic. There's no way that it can give us any indication about the larger medieval world." But but knowing how historians work and and how they work with their material, I'm sure that's not the case. Tell us. You know, the the big the big question is, why does this matter? What can this really tell us about the the folks from the past who are very much like us, but are also very, very different. On the most basic level, I would say that, you know, pigs seem like a really tiny subject to us now, but studying pigs in the early middle ages is kind of like studying, um, you know, like companion animals now, like dogs or cats or studying grocery store supply chains. Like these are really important parts of our lives. And we've just sort of forgotten how much of a difference livestock made at other periods of time. I think studying pigs also, gives us other angles on medieval culture that at first seem unrelated to pigs. So, you know, they give us a really interesting glimpse into the development of 
different religious identities around this particular animal. Um, what the pig reveals in the early Middle Ages is that it was not this obvious marker of religious difference in the beginning. Most people thought of the pig as Roman rather than Christian. And so when Jews or Muslims talked about pigs, they were primarily in, in the early part of this period thinking about Roman identity because Romans really loved pork. Um, but then over time, Christians really start embracing the contradictions inherent in the pig, the ways that it was both beneficial and destructive, the way it represented both meatiness and physicality as a kind of, you know, baser material existence and the way that in feeding humans, it also came to represent a kind of sacrifice. So it's, it becomes emblematic of these you know, this tension in Christianity between the flesh and the spirit between something that's mortal and something that's eternal. And so in thinking about this animal and making it kind of central or useful to their theological meditations, it becomes, it's through that process that it becomes more clearly Christianized and then becomes weaponized as a, you know, an antagonistic symbol that is, you know, in the late Middle Ages, really deeply anti-Semitic. So it, you know, the pig is also really revelatory of the kind of ways that um, religious meaning and identity can change, um, even under the same, you know, religious umbrella. All the world's in a pig. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us. Tell us again uh, the name of your book, where we can get it, and if there's any other places we can follow your work. Uh, it's Legions of Pigs in the Early Medieval West, and you can just ask your local bookstore to order it. That's how I'd recommend getting it. And I don't have a social media presence. I'm really bad at it, but you can um, check out my bio at, at my homepage at UGA, just through the history department. So our thanks uh, to Dr. Kreiner for joining us and giving us that fascinating talk. Uh, I'm going to go see if I can't find some barbecue right now. I suggest all of you do the same. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for being members. It's because of you that we have the ability, the resources to do what we love and bring the knowledge of history to all that we can reach. Tell all your friends, tell all your neighbors, let them know about the History Center, about our great programs online and on site. And until we see you again, stay safe and take care. Then Again is a production of the Cottrell Digital Studio at the Northeast Georgia History Center. We greatly appreciate your reviews on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to Then Again. You can follow the Northeast Georgia History Center on Facebook and Instagram, and check out our YouTube channel with hundreds of great programs. Thanks, y'all, and see you next week for another episode of Then Again.